The Sports Career Podcast, episode 254. Why are your communication skills important when pursuing a career in the sports industry? Hello Sports Achiever and welcome to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. Now before I talk about today's podcast special guest, I want to share with you my new ebook which is 250 Career Tips to be Successful in the Sports Industry. This is an overview of six years of podcasting where I share my best podcasting tips from the experts I've interviewed which will support your sports career journey. If you want to check out this new ebook, go to education to sport forward slash 250 ebook and you can see more information i'm super proud of it i know it will support your sports career journey and take action for more information now as always my goal each week is to provide you a sports industry expert in a particular sector in the sports industry to support your sports career development interests and needs now getting back to today's episode this week's podcast special guest is nick meacham Nick is the Managing Director at Sports Pro Media, where he's responsible for the sales and marketing and business development at the company. Also, he's a Senior Independent Director at the British Volleyball Federation. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Nick as a special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Nick will share his sports career journey and explain to you why our communication skills are vital when pursuing a career in the sports industry. Nick, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast show. Please do share to the listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Well, well where did it start? Quite a long time ago. Uh, if I look back, uh, obviously, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, playing, uh, playing sports, being an Australian, sports is all part of the culture and lifestyle there. And uh, kind of felt like that sport was really the only trajectory for me from a business and sort of work perspective and took up uh, a degree in business majoring in sports and event management, where studied for basically a mix of full-time and part-time over the course of about four years. And at the same time, I was working full-time working in the sports industry. So basically I was working at uh, one of Australia's uh, largest resorts, which hosted professional and corporate sports events. So mix of say major golf, golf events, corporate tournament, uh, tennis tournaments, and also hosted professional events like the Australian Golf Ladies Masters, Australian Women's Hardcore Championships. So I had a, quite a diverse range of sporting assets to be involved with. So I was doing that full-time whilst, whilst studying, which had a nice synergy with what, um, what my studies were related to. From there, a few small things in between, got into media a little bit in Australia, working in publishing for a while, and then decided to come over to the UK about, it's about 12 years ago now. Basically, long story short, got into uh, into sports pro media, uh, where um, I, I guess a convergence of my background in education, the previous work I'd done in the sports industry, and also in media kind of converged really well. Um, and I took a, took a, a sort of an entry role at sports pro, and now I have been there for yeah, a little over 11 years now. 
Um, also, I sit on the, the British Volleyball Board and have done for the best part of three years. And that is the board that oversees uh, Olympic and elite pathways for, for volleyball, for, for sitting, for beach and for indoor volleyball uh, across, across the UK. Wow, what an awesome answer. Look, I've got to go back in time a little bit. Out of interest, what were the benefits? And this is for students listening in. Looking back at the experience whilst you're studying, whilst getting hands-on experience, looking back now, how did that support you? Because sometimes we have this mindset, we've got to do the degree, then we get the experience. But if you can merge it together, what were the benefits during that period? The, the main thing is you can instantly apply what you're learning to your job. And you move away from doing your studies, which are largely theoretical and very difficult to learn how to implement. If you've got to sit on that knowledge that you learn and three years from now, hopefully imply it depending on what job you find. So just the ability to learn tangible things that I can actually go, okay, I can now try and implement those things in my job. And I give it, guess to give some examples of that, some of the elements I studied were around event management and running events and I was actually doing that as my job so people would have to do 100 hours of work experience and that was literally I could just that was what I was doing day to day and so uh, all that really helped him was okay we learned a bit more of the theory behind best practice which I'd only learned my own way or the way that I was taught by my role so you're able to sort of get that balancing act of what can you bring from your learnings from from university and how does that how does that relate to what you're doing on your day to day? So I think just being able to have a real real world uh, experience is, is so, so important because I think you do see the question mark on whether they work and study. Uh, for me, I've always had the mindset of if you can do anything as close to the, the sector or the industry you want to be in, it can only do give you huge benefits uh, in your career if you're actually being able to relate to it more closely than say, maybe it's say working in, in sort of hospitality just to get through and then shifting back in I think if you can get a start anywhere it's going to give you a huge benefit to do so and also during that experience did you see things you didn't like doing and things you did enjoy doing so I think that's the biggest thing students struggle with is they got the degree and then they go well what do I do with it because they can't find that niche or area where they want to explore and get interest can you just I know going back in time now but could you remember some experiences we were at I tried this marketing, for example, but actually I prefer sales. I'm just giving an example, uh, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think that's pretty consistent with anything, right? That you, it's all theoretical until you start actually putting it into, into practice. And by putting it into practice and actually doing uh, work in that, in that area, whether it's the running of those events, I was doing the sales and marketing as well at some stages. Another stage at the same resort, I was running the, the health club, which was a mixed facility of... Of, of tennis courts and gym and so forth and so you, you, you had all these various touch points just get a taste of what I did like and what I, I didn't like and that just helps get so much clarity in where you want to move into and sometimes that clarity can be I don't want to specialize in something or sometimes it can be I actually do really want to hone all my energy and time and effort into marketing or into uh, running running events and so forth so yeah I think it, it's pretty important that you do get to taste and touch and smell and feel whatever industry you do want to get into. Because if you don't, you also will spend a lot of time within your studies and then get to the end and you're like, actually, I've done all this study and it's not fit for purpose. Actually, I would say even if going back actually a step, when I started my university degree, I was doing a double degree in exercise science and business with majoring in sports management. So I was doing exercise science piece as well as the business side. And I just realized about a year into that, I'm like, do I actually want to become a 
know, physiotherapist or do I want to go into the science of it or do I want to go into business and being able to look at those the theoretical side plus have the experience of doing practical the, the practical piece was pretty easy for me to go actually let's just focus on the business side so yeah I think the more you can touch and feel what you want to do the the easier it's going to be for you to get I guess get clarity on where you want to go Absolutely. I hope the people are taking notes on that point. And one thing I want to talk about as well is culture, because on this show, I've been sort of more mindful that different countries have different ways of running sport, running business. And I'm just intrigued from your experience starting in Australia and how sport is run there to compare to the UK. I just love your personal experience on the culture of sport from a business standpoint or sport industry standpoint. It's quite a difficult question to answer succinctly, I would say. But, you know, I think if you ask anyone who knows Australia or Australians, they will quite often lean into sports being one of the key characteristics of its culture. So, I mean, for me growing up, sports was was everything. And it could have been just the result of my environment. But, you know, if you look actually at sports from a, from a sports perspective, it's obviously always overperformed uh, in terms of what is done on the, on the global stage, whether it's Olympics, whether it's other sports. Um, and also in Australia, everyone doesn't follow one sport. They're not just a football fan. They're a, they're a, or a soccer fan, rugby league, rugby union, cricket, Australian rules. You kind of almost mandated to follow at least two or three versions of that to begin with. And on the layer on the business side of that is all of those sports properties are largely quite successful commercially and professionally. They're well run. They are generating significant income generating billion dollar revenues on media rights and put in perspective the sports pro is only a marketplace of about 25 million people so for the fact that multiple sports are able to generate that sort of income just on media rights alone is probably a great indication of i guess the the opportunities that are available for people in the sports business world in australia so australia is i think you know it lives and breathes sports the commercial i guess the commercial opportunities are there are really prominent. It's really part, a core part, a core sector within, I guess, the sports, uh, sorry, within Australia's sort of ecosystem. Uh, and also what Australia does really well, it leans into taking best practice from a whole host of different markets. For example, the US is obviously seen as a benchmark for commercialization of sports. And many, many, many instances I've heard, uh, and I would agree that the UK and Europe is often five to 10 years behind, at least on how they commercialize their properties. So Australia sort of sits, even though it's a million miles away from everywhere, sits in a great place from a, I guess, from a connectivity standpoint where it's able to harness that insight of what is what works and what doesn't. And because of the market size is able to adopt very quickly versus what might happen in Europe and other places. So that's on the Australian side. So, yeah, I think quite, quite powerful and successful in monetizing, commercializing sport. The, the, the pathways for sports throughout Australia is very strong and robust, um, which gives it uh, just a nice sort of, uh, what do you call it, a cycle of, a uh, never-ending cycle of, sorry, self-fulfilling cycle, I should say, of people's interest in the sport being fed into um, um, you know, the prospect of being able to monetize that. On the UK side, it's a completely different ballgame. Uh, and the reason for that is it's just the way, uh, and UK is not the only example of this, Europe is, is another clear one, where you have football and you have everything else. So football is its own sector and own industry that has its own way of doing business. The revenues and money that sits in, in that space is just, uh, well, it's, it's, it, it sort of blows everyone's mind because it is a bit silly. The numbers don't really correlate to 
make, make any sort of distinct correlation on the, the business benefits that uh, they do create. But but that's what that is what it is. And then all of the other sports basically are fighting for for a piece of the rest of whatever pie is left over. And typically that is quite challenging, especially market by market where football is so, so dominant. You look at market by market and the other sports just don't compete, particularly in the team sports perspective. Um, so, and then if you go in, if you lead into things like um, support from a cultural perspective or from a junior perspective, UK, the UK in particular has some real big challenges in the pathways for, for athletes coming through. Because quite often, because of the way sports is funded from, from, from whether it's from UK Sports Funding Elite or Sport England and Sport Scotland who fund more grassroots layer, it's really difficult because they're not completely connected to make sure the funding flows evenly through the elite pathway. So if you're a junior coming through, you have a distinct and clear roadmap to how you can become an Olympian in the future. So that's a very sort of long-winded description, but I think... You can obviously dig into certain areas quite you know, a lot, lot further if, if you need be. So just touching back, you said the football industry is so dominant. You don't just mean from the monetization side. You, do you, I assume you're also relating to the how it's uh, mediated as well in the newspapers, online, on social media. So it's harder for, let's say, other sports to get that attention. Is that what you also mean as well? Yeah, to, to, to a large extent. I think you know, just football is the ultimate dominant dominant player in the sports sports world and, and as a result of that i mean in any industry you talk about monopolization as, as a problem in any industry and because football is so dominant in terms of the consumption of it in terms of how many people are playing it in terms of that leads to that's where the money goes and sits and typically what happens in a monopoly all the money stays in the monopoly it doesn't get filtered through the rest of other sports um, you know, challenger sports trying to develop um, from, whether it's from grassroots and up. So eyeballs and, and, and the money side are all just eaten up by the, the football behemoth. Uh, and it's really difficult for other sports to kind of get, get a, a piece of the action when that's happening. So what are your thoughts on like the 100 with regards to cricket? Is that an ex- like a good disruptor, if that makes sense? I'm just intrigued. Yeah, it's always, I, I look, at, we've looked and seen a number of different sports properties pop up over the past sort of 10, 20, 30 years, trying to find answers on how to engage new fans, how to create new monetization opportunities for the sport to, to fund the sport more effectively. And really those two things are probably the primary things that almost every sport is trying to achieve. And most of them, if not all, have failed. The exception of that is T20 and the IPL. And now we have the 100 trying to come in and, and, and sort of almost reinvent the reinvented and come up with a new way to do it. They have got the, the, the playbook mapped out in terms of what they need to do and what it needs to achieve to make sure the sport has a long-term success in terms of it's targeted towards families. They have the free-to-air partnerships in place with the BBC to ensure they're not just chasing immediate revenues. They have looked at recreating the, the, um, the TV experience to make sure that it's fit for purpose for, for programming um, and so on and so forth. So they, are trying to, they are ticking all the boxes and doing a really good job of that. They've made sure that the women's game is, is a much more bigger focus than you would see almost in any other league, which is, which is great. So they've got all the tools in place. They've got the framework set appropriately for success. The only challenge and question mark I have is, is it still too close to, to T20 to be able to be de- 
the difference to be clear for people who are coming into watching it, or is it just going to be another version of the same thing? So, so I would look what I would I think I would have loved to have seen is just all those cool initiatives that the hundred is trying to implement transferred straight into the T twenty game and seeing what that looks like. There's other challenges around that, but fundamentally, you've got to love what the ECB is trying to do. They're trying to be innovative. It's coming at a governing body level, which is really important. Um, they've got a sustainable structure. They're already profitable uh, with the model, which is, again, pretty unique because most new properties that do pop up take years and years to become profitable. So all the characteristics and the playbook is set for success. My only question is that, that, com that, that complexity of the, the comparison between T20 and the 100, is that going to cannibalise things a little bit? But otherwise, um, I'm, I'm all, all, for, all for that sort of innovation. Yeah, me too. And I think it time will tell. The reason I gave that example is, I'm not going to lie, I've got family members watching cricket who do not like cricket. And now they're watching it, you know, on one on YouTube, one on BBC and one on Sky. So it's just more trying to share the listeners that innovation is needed in the industry, trying to compete with the football industry. Nick, just going back to your career journey now, one thing I do want to touch on, touch on is your work with the British volleyball. Like, how do you balance your work at Sports Pro, which we'll touch on soon in this conversation, but also your real interest in British volleyball? Could you just explain to listeners your role there and what's what do you enjoy from that role or get from that role, if that makes sense? Sure. So for a little context, I, I was playing volleyball from, from about 13 years old and I was in one of the leading schools in Australia for, for volleyball. So the program was pretty strong and therefore I was living and breathing volleyball for several years in Australia. And only once I finished through the sort of high school and the junior years, there wasn't really the obvious pathway for me to sort of keep playing. So I sort of took a bit of a hiatus until I came to, came to the UK and it wasn't only, it was only then when I'm, I'm thinking, what sport can I sort of get back into to try and keep myself active? And I like to dip, dabble into various sports. And I thought, well, winter's coming. It's cold. Let's play something indoor again. And I got into indoor volleyball and then uh, I've been involved ever, ever since. But, um, but basically, so I got involved. I started playing more and more, uh, then got into coaching, got qualifications. And then a few years ago, I was approached about the opportunity of, of getting involved with uh, the British Volleyball Federation which is effectively the governing body that is responsible for, as I think I mentioned earlier, the Olympic pathway specifically, um, whereas all, everything else sort of sits with the home nation, so Volleyball England, Scottish Volleyball, Northern Ireland and Wales. And so their responsibility is explicitly to manage the funding so it goes to athletes to, to, to push them through um, at, at the elite level. Um, the challenge for that was, was the fact that there was no funding. The funding was taken away from a, 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 major, a huge amount of sports following London 2012, where UK sport decided that the only way it would fund sports is if they were legitimate medal uh, charts. If they didn't, they would literally get zero funding. And that took, really took the sort of heart and soul out of a lot of sports and who had players that were being funded and playing in different markets to, to be able to commit themselves to and dedicate themselves to that sport. So we saw a bit of a mass exodus at the elite level and the sport became basically a volunteer led organization and still is uh, 10 years, nearly 10 years later. Um, so, so my role is I'm the non-executive director. Also, I also act as the senior independent director for the board. But basically, that means I'm I'm involved with decision making and and sort of guidance around everything to do from corporate from governance to decision makings on communications to how how funding's achieved to lobby for funding from UK sports 
uh, sport and dealing with other stakeholders um, across, across the sporting landscape. Um, and so it's quite a varied role. Um, it's a volunteer based role, as I said. So I have to juggle that between what I'm doing for Sports Pro. Um, and I try to make sure I keep that balance, you know, obviously fit appropriate, but like any organization, there's peaks and troughs and where you have to dedicate more and less time to what they're doing. For example, when we had the next funding submissions um, in place for, for volleyball to lobby for funding from UK Sport, that took up a huge amount of time, a lot, lot of nights and, and a lot of staring at spreadsheets and, and word docs to try and get through that stuff. And then after that, you have a bit of much, much quieter time where you don't have to get too hands on um, through that period. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complex one, but it's a really exciting thing, to, a role to play because you're really at the heart of what sport is and what it's all about. You said to me in our first of a WhatsApp call that at the moment I'm like spinning plates. Could you just explain that term and how realistically, if you want to work in the sports industry, it relates to that phrase? Because honestly, I don't know how you do both, but how do you manage that time? I know it's a simple question, but I bet it's a complex answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, you have to be, you have to be pragmatic um, with where you have to prioritize um, and spinning plates for me revolves around my day-to-day -day with sports bro, as well as spinning plates can also refer to what we do with British volleyball, because at one stage we're talking about um, the relationship with the UK sport and the funding submissions. And next we've got to talk about the pathways that are being developed to and make decisions on how, how we use um, chief, our chief medical officer to, to make decisions on who can play at what tournaments and, and so, so forth. So there's a very, it's quite a spinning plates in terms of you jumping from thing to thing to thing to try and make sure you're doing the best job possible on that. So to, for me, that's, that's been almost something I've kind of enjoyed because I like being constantly busy and, and working through different things. And uh, even when I first sort of started working in the early roles in Australia, I spent a lot of time jumping from project to project, whatever I was given to tackle to try and to work through and to, to deliver. So for me, it's always just been something I'm quite, quite used to. Um, but if you, you are spinning lots of plates, you have to be very good at asking lots of questions and don't take anything for granted would be my only piece of advice because um, it's very difficult to get focused if you don't have a lot of time to focus on any one thing. You've got to kind of quickly reset and, and I guess work through things and cut through things pretty pretty quickly to, to work out which direction you need to go or what decision you need to make or what recommendation you need to do or where you need to prioritize your time. Uh, so, so spinning plates is something I've always had to deal with um, and, and, and so forth. you just got to get really good. It's really difficult. I think for anyone spinning plates is one of the hardest things and you need to be able to learn how to look, know when to focus to make sure you can ultimately get things done. Um, so yeah, what a challenge, an ongoing challenge for me. And look, I just want to touch on going back to British volleyball because you said to me before this call that there's a change in regards to funding with the elite athlete pathway. You're going, you're testing my knowledge now back at Durham when I did sports policy, where as you said to me before the call, it's all about, you said already about how many medals, uh, you know, a team or a, a sport gets. How is it changing out of interest? This is more of an interest point now moving forward in the Olympic movement of funding. Yeah, sure. So as I said before, after London 2012, all of the, the funding was basically taken away from any sport that wasn't a legitimate medal hope or a medal chance, um, which took, I don't know the number, but it took away funding from a lot of sports. And literally from that, those sports basically went to zero pounds revenue. And so they couldn't be self-sustaining. And that, that model has been in place for, for, for the last nine years. 
And now, um, and basically that model was built on likelihood of metals and best return on investment, the funding. So basically, what could you show, improve to UK sport that you could deliver from an ROI perspective based on the amount of money you would get? So very, very businessy, I guess, in, in the, for, the for, format. And obviously the negative implications of that is you, you destroy the pathway for, for elite people coming through. And it's near and impossible to keep people moving up into elite and, and, and get them to be a place where they could be competing medals for medals in the future if they don't have that framework in place for them to, to tap into. So now only recently, the, the model is starting to shift where UK Sport have announced, I think it was a little over probably 18 months ago, two years ago maybe now, when the, the, funding, the, the funding submission process began. And they basically outlined that that is still where the core money goes to, is how likely are you to medal or at least get to the Olympics, to medal or get to the Olympics. Um, and then the next layer of that is, okay, can you create a framework that will get you into the Olympics in eight years time uh, or, or 12 years time. And so you have to work through quite an extensive process to tick all the boxes of explaining and articulating how you're going to go through and achieve that. Um, in the end, uh, our sport wasn't successful for that piece of funding, although what happened was and a number of other sports weren't as well, but they ended up creating a new fund very last minute. I think it was sort of a reaction to realizing that they needed to give some support uh, to sports like ours, where they created a new fund called the National, uh, oh, it's called the NSSF, I can't remember what one of the words is, and, and that fund is basically set up explicitly to start allowing the, the top players and teams to compete at the top competitions. So it's explicitly for funding players and athletes to compete. So that model is changing. It gives us a chance to prove and validate to UK Sport, okay, if you give us some money, we can start showing you that we can start to see an upwards trajectory. Which is, which is nice. There's still next to no funding in place for any administration. So again, at the British volleyball level, we're still having to be largely uh, volunteer run, um, but we are, there's a small bucket, I suppose, that made available to administer the funding to be given basically to athletes and to teams to compete in various tournaments. Yeah, no, it does. I did have a follow question because you test me again. Is this funding separate to the national lottery that the UK do? So the national lottery feeds into uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, feeds into into this. So, but the UK sports funding is largely controlled by government. So government, oh, yeah, yeah, and that feeds through sport. I think Sport England um, gets a lot of funding from the national lottery uh, as well. So, final question on British volleyball because you just got me really intrigued on this topic. It, how, how, from a board perspective, have managed to create a vision moving forward? I'm just intrigued on this, like from people listening in about how boards work and trying to improve your organisation. Did you put a vision in place from now moving forward with this change? The hard part with sort of formalising what the long term vision for this is, it's so dependent on funding. So if you don't have the funding, you can't ultimately get athletes because our responsibility is very, very focused. Our responsibility is explicitly on developing pathways that can get athletes and teams into the Olympics. It isn't anything to do with grassroots. It isn't to do with building up a pathway through. So ours is actually very, very sort of concentrated. Our ultimate vision is to get uh, both uh, all three disciplines, so beach, sitting um, and, and indoor, into the Olympics. And we're looking at, largely looking at four, eight and 12 years. So four years for sitting, we think there's a chance to get into the Olympics in, yeah, sorry, Paralympics in four years time. Eight years we hope for 
for beach could be earlier depending on performances but that's that's sort of the benchmark and potentially 12 years for indoor again could be quicker depending on how things go and how much funding's put on the table and so forth but in a lot of these sports particularly for something like indoor currently there aren't there isn't effectively a gb team or even really an active um, home nation playing a lot overseas so we're kind of again starting from scratch in a lot of those instances so to develop a vision funding and your strategy is so dependent on something that is that is formalized by a third party and can be taken away and added to every four years it's quite difficult to to do um and in terms of about eight eight months ago we were absolutely expecting that we were going to get a couple of million pounds worth of funding into the sport and from everything they were telling us it sounded like we would tick all the boxes and then all of a sudden for that not to happen was was quite quite a shock to the system and when, particularly when so many people are putting work into that it's hard to it's hard to overcome though we did end up getting six north of six hundred thousand pounds of funding to be invested back into just to, to participate um sorry to competition play for for sitting and for the other uh, volleyball disciplines so hard to create a dis hard to create a vision when you have that sort of issue we're fortunate in the uk that beach volleyball has had huge growth in participation and quality over the last eight to 10 years. And that is absolutely a legacy of London 2012, where quite simply, there wasn't a lot of beach courts around, right? Sand isn't obviously in a lot of, a lot of city centers. And the, the sand literally that was used from the Olympics was able to be turned into courts littered across not only London, but in other markets. And that is just incredible, a whole sort of influx of people playing playing, competing in all sorts of different tours. There's a UK beach tour now. There's a other sort of um, secondary tours. And that's really sort of raising the bar on the sport. So it's coming from the bottom up rather than, than top down, but it's very exciting where that sport sits. That's awesome. I've learned something new today. Amazing. This is what I love about podcasting. Nick, I'm going to pivot the conversation now. I love to talk about your time at Sports Pro and what have you learned from the last 11 years? Could you just give a paint a picture of your main role there? But specifically to the listeners, like what skill sets have you developed during that your time there as well? Well, so I, I, as I said, as you said, I started 11 years ago. When I started, I started in an entry-level position in the sales team. Um, I had a background in media sales and in media. Um, and so it was, a, it was a pretty comfortable sort of move. In, like, so as, as I said before, it sort of was an alignment of my experience and background to sort of join the company. Um, and, and from there, I learned pretty quickly well, I learned pretty quickly, firstly, just the dynamic of the sports industry is, I think, so different to how everyone sees it. Right? It's much more complex. There's a lot of different stakeholders and, and, and it's very political also in the role of the international federations and the governing bodies. The, the, sort of the disconnect on where the revenue sits between football and other sports. There's a lot of complexity and nuance that I think people will quite often talk about sports in a catch-all. They'll go, oh, sports is this. We're actually... Sports is made up of a host of different sectors, a host of different sports, and a host of different ranges of opportunity, depending on which, which organization you're, you're involved with. So I think that was the thing for me that I really started opening my eyes to, particularly when I started at, at Sports Pro. Uh, and generally, I, you know, I got the opportunity to start talking to a lot of international federations and understanding how they work and how they fit. And I found that really interesting to, to understand Again, how they try and govern their sports, how they try and generate revenue, uh, and so on. But overall, I used to, I've, I've said this for the past 10 years, and I would still say it now. The sports 
has fundamentally been successful in spite of itself, not because of itself. And what I mean by that is sports is, is successful in terms of generating revenue and having eyeballs and people's passion because it's sport, because it's people's grow up, they love it, they live it, they breathe it. But it's in spite of itself because it's still not run as well as it could be. And that's whether it's at a governance level, whether it's on a professional commercializing level, because everyone has ultimately different objectives. The governing body's objectives are completely different. Well, let's say the FA's objectives are completely different to what the Premier League's objectives are. And they try and create some synergies there, but ultimately there's a massive disconnect. Uh, and it's not for want of trying, but sports is going to have this ongoing issue that, you, that, that there's a disconnect between the objectives that each sports property has, what the CEO is given as an objective, and what the governing bodies are trying to achieve all sorts of different levels on the, on the pathway. Wow. Okay. So hold on a minute. Let's have a time out. Like, in your opinion, then, do you think you've got to have a different perspective working in this industry? Then, because a lot of time I get on the show, you have to have passion to work in this industry. But what you're saying is, and I'm not a big fan of this word passion, unless it unless it's through the work you do, like your time with British Volleyball, which your passion in adding value to that organisation. But with regards to you know um, the Premier League and UEFA, like for your FIFA. Do you, do you think moving forward or young professionals, you have that perspective of a different outlook to work in this industry to create those synergies being stronger? I think you've got to work out what you want to, what you want to get out of working in the sports industry because, as I said before, it's made up of all sorts of different subsectors and divisions. So do you want to work in sports because you want to be where the money is? Do you want to get in sport because you'd love to see and help people um, and use sport as an incredible tool that it is, whether it's getting people participating, whether it's for health, whether it's whatever it might be, they, they don't sit in the same world. You know, they are two completely different, different, different beasts. Um, and if you're looking to come into sports because you think there's loads of money and opportunities, it's actually very, very hard to get into, get into sports and, and unlock that opportunity. But then you have to go into a very, very commercial organisation. Um, but if you want to have, you want to be in the sport because you just want to be part of it, then there's a very different roadmap for you. Yeah. No, you've gosh, you've got me thinking today. And I want to go back to skill sets now. You said you started in sales. Like, how has that supported you now? And um, how do you define sales in the sports industry? The number one skill anyone could have is good communication. And, and in sales, you have to be a good communicator. Because if you're not, you can't sell very well. <laughs> and it's really that simple. So sales kind of forces you, particularly uh, going back sort of 10 to 20 years ago, where there was a lot more cold calling, uh, there's a lot more situations where you are trying to create instant rapport in seconds with people who may or may not even want to talk to you. You've got to learn to be able to connect with people very, very quickly. So communication communication and listening is the two things I always talk about, uh, key skills, that if you can listen and trans, translate that into something that you can then use, whether it's just insight to do your job better, or it's something that you can turn into a, a tool that you can help sell whatever you're trying to sell better, those sorts of things are just incredibly uh, valuable skills to have in, in any role, no matter what you do in a company. Uh, and so sales, I think, just helps, helps with that. It helps have confidence in talking to people right across the industry because you could be doing an incredible job, but if you're behind the scenes, you may never get the chance to expose yourself um, to the right types of people who are in, in, in key positions. And the sales does more likely lead to that opportunity than it would in perhaps some other, other segments. So, so how has communication supported you with your sort of growth at Sports Pro out of interest? 
Well, we're in a media company, so you have to be good at communicating in different ways. Uh, I'm, I would not say I'm a great communicator, but, but it's helping me learn how to become a better communicator. Uh, and it always has, even 11 years in, I'm still always always learning. And that, that learning can come from the exposure to, to people we have at our events, the ones that we cover in our podcasts and our videos and our conferences in the magazine and read and how they articulate what they do, how they do it, how they create their vision, how they engage with people internally, how they engage with people externally. So for me, it's just that I have access to that um, as part of being in sports pro that I'm quite fortunate with um, because we are living and breathing that sort of stuff every every hour of every day. Um, so, so I think I'm quite beneficial. I'm beneficial. I'm benefited in that that instance. Um, but I'd say going in, I absolutely hated the the prospect of being having to actively communicate with people externally. But you've got to get yourself out of your comfort zone if you want to get better at these things. Uh, and the better communicator you are, I just think inherently you'll have more opportunities because people connect with people, not just sell, but people people connect with people better. If you're going for a job in then if you come across well in an interview and if you've got the best skills possible, it's going to make it easy for you to get a job. And, and so I think just communication is something you, you can't focus on more than, than anything else. I hope people are taking notes. And Nick, the one thing I want to touch on now, because we haven't actually said it, what is Sports Pro? I think what you've been doing the last 18 months during the pandemic has been amazing with your events, but could you just explain to listeners what sports pro about? I know you give a little snippet already, but just specifically so they can engage in the content and the events you do and your podcast with um, Matt Rogan, if I'm correct as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so fundamentally we are a publisher. I try and say this in simple work terms. We're a publisher and we're an events business covering the business side of sports. So we don't cover anything to do what happens on the field. It's all about what happens off it. So we talk about sponsorship. We talk about governance and media rights. We talk about fan engagement, how people are using social media platforms, how they're creating new technology that helps run sports more effectively. So it's everything to do with off the field performance. And that can go into a whole host of different areas or, or the boardroom is kind of another way to look at it. What happens in the, in the boardroom? Uh, and so we produce about 10 to 15 news stories across the globe covering news that's happening everywhere. Again, those in those different pillars that I referred to. Um, we have events that we run uh, in a typical year. We run about nine or 10 events in five countries. So we run events in Spain, Singapore, USA, Switzerland, and the UK. We also, um, as of the last 18 months, we really ramped up what we do from a virtual perspective, um, which uh, has been a huge success for us because, well, as I said, fundamentally, we're a publisher and events business, but we haven't actually had the opportunity necessarily to bring those two worlds together as effectively as we would like. Our website is read by about 400,000 people every month consuming our content. And our events, we target that more at the C, the C level, director level people across the industry. We have about two to 3,000 people attend the physical events in a given year, again, pre-pandemic. So what we've had is a bit of a disconnect there with we're not allowing 99 plus percent of our audience uh, from a media perspective, the ability to access what we do on the event side. And so the virtual side allowed us to bring those people a lot closer together to the content and, and all, importantly, to the people that we bring into those, those, those platforms and those, those events, even if they are virtual. And so the, the events we've been running virtually have ranged between webinar, one to our webinars, to 100 speakers uh, from 30 different countries with 3,500, 4,000 people in attendance across 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 various markets 
through to you know, the, more, the more niche ones. But we're, we're quite fortunate that actually, in many ways, um, I don't want to say we benefited from the pandemic, but it's kind of really helped us accelerate the, the virtual side of our business, which has allowed us to, to create way better connectivity and create way better, way better breadth of content for people who are trying to learn more about what's going on, uh, whether it's about a pandemic or whether it's about the burgeoning digital transformation and digitization of the sports industry, whether it's OTT, whether it's esports. We cover all those sorts of areas because people are constantly trying to work out what on earth is going on and how do we get ahead of it rather than keep chasing, uh, chasing these opportunities around. So instead of looking at things change, like chasing something, has adapting been the key word for you and your team looking back the last 16 months? Yeah, look, I mean, if you look at the start of the pandemic, we were very close to uh, rolling out our, our next event. I believe that event was going to be in Singapore. And we were tossing up around that stage where everyone was trying to work out what they what they were going to do. We ended up having to put that on, on, on hold as well as our next event a month later. Uh, and what we sort of saw across, across the whole industry, particularly the sports, uh, sports business trade events sort of landscape, is particularly everyone sort of had to go and live into hibernation because their businesses, their businesses were built around being an events business and they weren't able to deliver what they needed to deliver and that's that's quite common across the whole industry obviously not just events but sports what we decided to do was kind of flip that while everyone's zigging we wanted to zag and we sort of went okay if everyone's going to start sort of going into to having to go into hibernation a bit what can we do to actually ramp up what we do to sort of position ourselves in a better place for all of this and actually create more opportunity off the back of it so what we decided to do was really ramp up we we launched a uh, i guess it was initially a 12 a 12-part virtual series of online events. Um, then we launched, turned everything that we did physically into a virtual model. Um, and we also ran up, did a few other things as well. But what we ended up getting to was, I think we had something like 30,000 people consume our virtual conferences in over a 12-month period. Uh, majority of those people were new to us, new to uh, attending our events because obviously the, the scale. Um, and also we were supported really, really well by our commercial partners because they were looking for also for opportunities and a lot of them, a lot of their key focus from a business development and commercial perspective was historically built around conferences and events to meet and engage with people. So what could we do to help that? And we were one of the few that really took a, a front footed approach to this of like, we're going we're gonna to ramp things up rather than take a step back. And ultimately we were very fortunate that it worked out really well for us. Can you talk about the podcast show as well? Because I think it's fantastic. And just for the listeners who want to hear more on that. Yeah, so we produce, uh, we produce a number of podcasts. So we have uh, a regular weekly, uh, weekly and fortnightly output. We have the, the playbook series with Matt Rogan, who's a co-founder of Two Circles, one of the leading agencies in the industry. And he's been a supporter of mine as well as of the company of Sports Bros for the best part of a couple of years now as well. Um, and that is that digs into the leadership side. So it's almost a podcast, which is almost transferable for any industry, not just sports. Is how do you lead an organization better? Everything from how to tackle culture, how to create new business opportunities, how to become more diverse, how do you tackle a pandemic, how do you write a PL, all those sorts of things which are very transferable to, 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 to sports and outside of sports. And for me personally, I find it just an incredible series because it's also very evergreen. It doesn't, it's something that has value, will have value 12 months from now or two years from now for anyone that does listen to it. And Matt's done an incredible job with that series. 
in addition to that, we have a mix of content which we do around, it can be varying from weekly news coverage where we're covering what's going on and the, the sort of the current affairs. And we'll interview interesting people from, from all sorts of different corners of, of the, the industry. We're also looking to, to launch a couple of other new podcasts imminently, which uh, I can't say too much more, but they're, they're coming soon. So um, stay tuned for those. And, and look for us, you know, what we're trying to do fundamentally as a publisher and a media business is take much more of an omni-channel approach. So we want to make sure that we're serving new content in the way that if you're a consumer, you want to consume it. So if it's audio, if it's video, you're preferred, if it's written, if it's in, in person, we've got something there that's going to give you what you need. And that's kind of our philosophy for this is how, how can we have a true omni-channel approach to providing all the content and education that everyone needs in this industry that is moving so, so fast. Absolutely. That's the power of content creation. Look, thank you so much for sharing that snippet. And look, Nick, I've enjoyed this conversation. We've talked on so many different topics, but just going back to your career now, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey, you know, starting in Australia and to where you are now? Oh, look, I think, I think it is the fact that we are in sports. As I said, you know, a lot of people come into sports because they love sports growing up. They live it and breathe it. And I think you actually can't, it's easy to take that for granted once you start getting into the sports industry, but you are working in an industry that you grew up having such a great passion for. And people can often sort of disconnect themselves from that passion sometimes if they get stuck into the weeds of working in it. But you have to keep reminding yourself that you are part of a really cool industry to be in and that has such a transformative effect on people's lives, whether it is the five-year-old coming, you know, who's, who's playing sport at school and sees their, sees someone they, they start becoming, uh, becomes an idol for them from the Olympics, or it's, it's someone who's trying to get themselves to the next level to compete at the Olympics or becomes a, a global ambassador. So there's so much, there's so much opportunity that sports does bring. I think you have to always you know, really take stock of the fact that we work in such a cool industry. And you connect and talk with cool people. I like to finish with an inspirational question. Out of interest for the listeners listening in, what three qualities would you give them with regards to starting their career in the sports industry right now? You have to be a good communicator, which I've already talked quite a lot about. That's that's number one. You have to be able to go over and above. Now, what I mean by that can mean anything from uh, having some new skills or unique skills that really do transfer into the sports industry that people are looking for. So a classic example of that would be knowing how to use data and data tools to be able to dig into an analytics more effectively, but something to stand out because it is so competitive, particularly at entry level, you have to find a way to differentiate yourself from a very, very crowded marketplace. Uh, and the other one is being very good at making connections. Again, links of communication, but you have to be able to make connections, just build relationships, become friendly with people because a lot of what happens in this industry is linked with who you know, Absolutely. I hope, again, people take notes. And that final one is so, so true. Like really quickly, I know you won't mind me saying his name is how we got connected through Dev Kumar Palmer. Uh, so honestly, the more conversations you have, the more meaningful conversations you have, the better chance you have. Look, Nick, how can people interact with you online? Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter. Uh, the handle's at SportsProNick, or one word. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn on, on uh, Nick Meacham. So you feel free to, to look me up on, on there. You should find me. That is great to all the listeners listening in all those links and the podcast links and any awesome content I can find that will be on the blog post with regards to this podcast episode. Nick, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. What a really fascinating conversation with Nick. And there's so much I've taken from this conversation, particularly his role 
overall role in the sports industry, having the role with British Volleyball and having the role with Sports Pro and how he's used the skills along the way for those two roles I find really interesting because really I've learned even from my experience that in the industry it's not a nine-to-five gig. It really isn't. You are always doing multiple projects which aren't using the same skill sets, if that makes sense. So his work on the board of British Volleyball, a totally different scope of work with Sports Pro, but the skill sets are so relatable, particularly the one he mentioned, which is the most important, and I have to agree with him, is your communication skills, but particularly your methods of how you communicate. And for me, that is the biggest takeaway I've taken from this conversation. But from a sports industry perspective, it was a really fascinating conversation about understanding the sports ecosystem, particularly with the football industry compared to other sports where it can be a struggle with regards to getting, as he said, those eyeballs and getting that exposure because it is so important. It's one element to any successful ecosystem is to have that eyeball exposure online or with the sport with the Oscar funding so that was a really fascinating conversation of understanding how sports work behind the scenes of what actually goes on the volleyball court the football pitch and that's what really leads well to sports pro itself as a like a media company with the Oscar sports business and if you haven't checked out the content you really should because that's how I keep up to date with the upcoming trends in the sports industry from a business standpoint. So overall, I really hope you've taken a lot from this conversation. And finally, from a student standpoint, the benefits of applying your degree into the area you have an interest in. Without a doubt, that has helped Nick right from the get-go with regards to the events he was working out in golf and tennis which was relatable to the theory side of his sports degree. So that's a key, key point I want to highlight as well at the ending. But overall, put Nick's career tips into practice today, improve your communication skills, improve those meaningful conversations so you're building that network. That is vital to making your sports career a reality. So put that into place right now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Nick said, develop your communication skills, develop your skill sets so you stand out and also make connections. That is key to working in the sports industry.